Hello and welcome to another episode of The Company of the Cat, the show where we talk about different stories from the A Song of Ice and Fire books and now House of the Dragon 2, along with the real, mythical or fictional events that inspired them. I'm Bloodbeard's replacement and your host, and today's episode is about prophecies and dreams. I know I said in the previous one that I would talk about Daldon and the Ironborn, but I lied to the episode about prophecies now. Helena is one of the best prophets slash dreamers we have seen in the series so far. She's up there with Pat, Jojen and maybe Aaron, because the things he sees about Euron are ominously foreboding, to say the least. And the reason they are accurate is that they keep it vague. They never read into them, and I'm gonna talk about it later, but first let's take a look at Helena. A thing that was pointed out way too much about her is her fascination and bond with arthropods, especially spiders. And my question was, but why spiders? And then I looked into it, and I think one reason is the duality of the spider in mythology and history and how it resembles the prophecy itself. In some mythologies, spiders are depicted as benevolent, helpful and powerful creatures, often associated with creation myths, and in others are portrayed as tricksters or villains. The most interesting spider figure in my opinion is Anansi, the icon god who has both of these sides. He is the god of stories, wisdom, knowledge, and he is associated with creation, but also trickery, exactly like a prophecy. As we are told in the novels, a prophecy is like a half-trained mule. It looks as though it might be useful, but the moment you trust in it, it kicks you in the head. Prophecy will bite your prick off every time. Another reason for the use of spiders is that spider divination is a thing. Nagam is a type of divination found among many groups in Western Africa, in which the actions of spiders or crabs are interpreted by the diviner. Crabs, like spiders, are also very interesting arthropods, and they also have a very diverse role in myths and folklore. In medieval times, the crab was a bad omen. It symbolized greed, deceit and cruelty. It was a sign of ill nature, and the sight of a crab while taking a stroll on the beach foretold quarrel. But other cultures, like the Cayenne tribe of Borneo, for example, had a crab along with a spider in their creation myth. Others thought of the crab as a lunar symbol, like the Incas, who connected the crab with the waning moon and thought of it as a devourer. Crabs in the novels are also mentioned a lot. We have deities like the crab king of the Roinar or the crab gods worshipped by some free folk, but I haven't realized how often characters were eating them. And it makes sense, they are very tasty and it's normal to be very popular food. But we have as many instances where crabs eat humans. Whenever corpses are thrown into the sea, the crabs play the role of the crows. It is pointed out constantly that crabs eat the dead, not the fish. Pat's face said, the crow, the crow, under the sea the crows are white as snow, I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. And obviously this line could mean many things, it's a prophecy after all, and many people believe it's about John, but my point is that it paints the picture of a white underwater crow. And the first thing that came to my mind are these white spider crabs that the borels, the people with membranes between their fingers, have as a sigil, and how they say they feel like cannibals when they eat them. And after seeing how often crabs, like crows, are eating the dead, it's very difficult for me to at least not draw a parallel. Another line that stands out is the line of Sir Davos, I should have given myself to the sea, Davos thought as he staring at the torch beyond the bars, or let the sail pass me by to perish on my rock, I would sooner feed crabs than flames. So the guy that somehow is not dead, 
that had visions of himself talking with the gods after his weird resurrection is saying that giving himself to the sea and letting the crabs eat him is better than the flames. The flames that Mel uses to see things, like people with green powers use the crows and the ravens. He is comparing the crabs with the flames. So, yeah, I think there is more to crabs and spiders. And the last reason for the use of arthropods, I think, is to back up the many Lovecraftian references we have in the books, or at least give a hint about them. The amount of Lovecraft stuff in the novels, it's crazy, and at this point, very difficult for me to ignore. They deserve a video of their own. Oh, if anyone is interested, comment below. But let's focus on the spider and crab stuff for now. Atlachnaha is a being that looks like a giant spider with a human face and duels in a cave system beneath the extinct Arctic Kingdom of Hyperborea. Its webs bridge the caverns of the underworld together, but also they are a bridge between the dreamlands and the waking world. It is believed that when the web is complete, the end of the world will come. People with prophecies are dreamers in A Song of Ice and Fire, and many of the dreams people see are visions and very realistic. Also, in a video essay or a live stream, I'm not sure, uh, David Lightbringer had compared the Weirwood Roots and Ned to a web. And I really like this because here the web of Atla does exactly the same. It's connecting the countless bottomless caves of a northern Arctic kingdom. The next being I want to talk about is the Thogia, an old one that had its lair next to Atla, also in the Hyperborean cycle. Even though not connected with spiders or prophecies, I found interesting the fact that a toad-like creature with bad wings, so a flying reptile, that demands sacrifice is so close to Atlah, and also has the name Father of Night. The next one is an arthropod, though, and connected with prophecies. Bayatis is one of the gods of divination along with Ig and Han. Bayatis had one eye like the Cyclops, and great serpent-like growths which hung from its face like a beard. It was somewhat like a spider, somewhat like a crab, and somewhat like a horror in dreams. Again, reptile crab spider creature connected with prophecies and is also connected with Ig, another reptile old one, that its name resembles Ig, the white demon tree in the Ironborn mythology that was most likely a weirwood, but also Yggdrasil, the tree of life in Norse mythology. Bayatis had the ability to cause madness and forgetfulness to its victims. And that brings me to another pattern in the novels, and in House of the Dragon. People with prophetic abilities often are moony, aloof, and others straight-up mad. In the series, we learn about two more dreamers, Viserys and Aegon. Viserys, like Mel, is very bad at reading and understanding these dreams and prophecies. Helena, though, is more like Patches. She talks about them, but does not assign a specific meaning to them. If we take a look at Patches, Helena, Jojen, and sometimes Aaron, four people with prophetic dreams and visions, we see some similarities, and the first one is that all of them are kinda aloof. Three out of four aren't very healthy, either mentally like Aaron and Patch, or physically like Jojen. Helena is trickier. I have seen people say that she's autistic coded, and yes, it seems like that sometimes to me too, but I'm not an expert or a person with autism, so maybe I am reading it wrong. The thing with autism is that although autistic people have a different way of adapting to and interacting with the environment, and it can be more difficult for them to fit in sometimes, 
autism isn't a mental illness. If this is the case with Helena or not, I'm not sure. What I am sure, though, is that she is traumatized. She is having shitty dreams about the dance, there is a big possibility that she knows about her future, and she is married to a horrible person. Aegon was terrible towards Aemond when they were younger, and he was rude towards Helena, so I wouldn't find it weird if he was also bullying her. Now, this person is an alcoholic, he finds pleasure in extreme violence, and Helena is married to him. Even the little speech she gave in the 8th episode hinted that Aegon won was not a pleasant person when drunk, something that became painfully clear in episode 9 when we watched him take pleasure in disgustingly inhumane stuff. And two, he was interacting with her when drunk, and this is the problem in their wedding, according to her. It's much better when he's ignoring her. I think her drama is even more clear if you observe her when she was younger versus in the last episode where she is a young adult. Yes, she was aloof, but she wasn't as moony or detached you can see that she is getting more affected with time. All four of them have severe trauma. Two of them have a horrific near-death experience, and there is a possibility they actually died and were brought back. And the other two have visions about their death, and the death of the people around them. Plus, all of them were very young when they started. Aaron was the oldest, and he was somewhere between 16 to 20, which is still very young. Bloodraven said that every song must have its balance. This is why green seers are unhealthy. The bigger your gift, the bigger the price. And knowing the future is a big gift that comes with price, apparently, and this price is your sanity or health. Melisandre, unlike the rest, uses blood sacrifice to boost her abilities and sometimes get a glimpse into the future. She isn't pained with her sanity or her own blood or health. She's also very bad at reading and understanding her visions, but is convinced she's doing it right, has a big fixation on the Azura High prophecy and her religion, and she's pushing for more visions and information in whatever way she can. So this ability isn't even a gift anymore, or that useful. Same with Viserys, his dreams were almost useless, they didn't make any difference because he's 100% sure that he's reading them correctly, which as we saw, wasn't the case. And actually, this is never the case. You can never read into a prophecy and understand its meaning. Prophecies don't work like that. The only reason Patches, Helena's, Aaron's and Jodan's dreams are accurate is because they are vague. We never see them translate these dreams. We are told exactly what they are seeing. We understand what they mean after they are fulfilled or we can kinda guess because we have a broader picture as readers. Prophecies are designed to work in a way that cannot be guessed. This is why people that don't try to attach a specific meaning into their vision and nobody hits their words are the ones that have more accurate visions and dreams, like Cassandra. Apollon gave her the power of foresight as a bribe to enter into a romantic engagement and when she refused, he added the curse that nobody would believe in her prophecies. The moment you try to understand its meaning, to try and stop it or change it, you lose the game. I think this is the reason so many Targaryens became mad after some time, because we have many of them that become more and more insane in time, they weren't always like that, and that would explain why the majority of them were men, because the prophecy was passed to future kings, and they became obsessed with it. People like Baylor or Rhaegar found these vague prophecies in books or scrolls and tried to make them come true or stop something from coming true. Plus, they were written in Old Valyrian, which most likely added to the confusion. 
It doesn't matter how fluently they spoke the language, it was still a lost language. And for sure, many of the words had a different meaning or were used differently. Even Amon said that we were fools. Valyrian language didn't use genders. Imagine how many other stuff they might have overlooked. Prophecies are always the problem, never the solution. And I think the biggest reason everything is going to hell is because they tried to stop these prophecies. But in reality, they cause everything or make everything worse. Think about one of the most known stories that began with a prophecy, the story of Oedipus. Laios, his dad, was told by Pythia only that if he ever had a son, he would die by his hand. Nothing else. Now, Laios was a huge asshole even before his kingship, by the way. He had raped and caused the suicide of a young boy before he became a king. And this is why Ira cursed him. So it makes sense for him to approach this knowledge the way that he did. At first, he tried to not have sex with Iocaste, who didn't know about the prophecy. So one night, she got him drunk and they slept together. How did he got it up is a question, but anyway. And Iocaste became pregnant with Oedipus. After the birth, he put a hook through the baby's feet and told a slave to leave the baby to die on a mountain. But a shepherd found him and later was adopted by Polybius and Merope, the king and queen of Corinthos. And after that, we know what happened. War, incest, blindness, suicides, a huge mess in general. Thing is, if Laios, for once in his life, had been a decent human being and tried to do his best as a dad, maybe all this mess wouldn't have happened. Yes, he would have died by Oedipus, but maybe, in the meantime, things wouldn't have been so bad. The death could have been accidental and not as harsh as it was. Oedipus wouldn't have married and had gigs with his mother. Wars where innocent people lost their lives could have been avoided and so on. Same in the novels. I cannot explain how hard I rolled my eyes when Viserys told the prophecy of Aegon. You could hear my eyes roll. It was that hard. Westeros must be united, so let's take our dragons and start burning people. Let's do war to unite the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, this is how it works, you got it. I can guarantee that the only reason Zaharis was the only good king was because he didn't read too much into the prophecy. He wasn't entitled or stupid enough to think that, ah, this means that our line would save the world, our line would produce the messiah that would save the world. He said, okay, united, we must make peace. He took time to learn about his people, to meet his people, and tried to resolve conflicts instead of creating them. I believe the ending will be bittersweet because sadly something like this will happen again. Because there will always be people that put their own gain over the common good, you cannot avoid it. The Azor Ahai and the prince that was promised prophecy is the problem from the fucking start. The reason why so many people feed this damn prophecy is that it's not about one person. Everybody must put aside their ego and greed and sacrifice something to make the world a better place. It's not about a freaking Jesus. One person cannot save the world. You are not that important. Like war doesn't unite people. Follow Zaharis's lead and make love not war. Just not with your siblings. That's all for today's episode. Leave your own theories and thoughts about dreams and prophecies in general and whatever else you want to talk about in my social media. If you stuck till the end of the episode, thanks a lot for listening, I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, then tune in for the next one. Bye!